0: So you think you have a good fantasy team, maybe you want to invest in it. We'll talk with the co-founder of the website Fantasy Squared, where you can invest in fantasy baseball teams. John Norman is next on Baseball HQ Radio. pitch by Downing, swinging, there's a drive into left center field, that ball is gonna be out of here, it's gone, it's 7-15, there's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. the fireworks are going.
1: Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a
0: belt, left field, way back, Blue Jays win it, the Blue Jays are World Series champions.
2: Learn to play the winner's way cuz Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from baseballhq.com
3: columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio, show number 14 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season for the week of April the 21st. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to John Norman of Fantasy Squared, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League Analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League Analyst is columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about the importance of not overmanaging your categories. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Arizona right-handed pitching prospect Archie Bradley, and in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler takes the week off, so managing editor Ray Murphy comes in to pinch hit and talks about small samples. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Prince Fielder helped his fantasy teams this week by stealing a base. We gotta talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Thanks a lot, Patrick.
0: Let's start in... uh... Philadelphia, where they've had some upheaval because of injuries and some playing time changes, but after spending opening day on the bench, Juan Pierre, who's got a record as a speedster, started five of the next six games when the Phillies faced right-handed starters. Just two years ago, he stole 68 bases, which could be a real help in most fantasy formats, had a stolen base opportunity rate of 43%, so he was going on practically half his chances. Those numbers dipped dramatically last year, but is Juan Pierre a guy to look at for a team that needs steals?
2: You know, Juan Pierre before Thursday night had one of the strangest slash lines I've ever seen. His batting average and his on-base percentage and his slugging percentage were exactly equal, which means he's had no had no walks and had uh, no extra-base hits. He finally got a walk and a triple, I think, on uh, on Thursday night. But uh, right now, Juan Pierre is uh, is getting on bases, hitting, hitting 333. Uh, getting on base, and getting a chance to run some. He's got three stolen bases so far. But the thing to, to remember about Juan Pierre, I think, based on what we saw last year, was there was a dramatic drop in his in his success percentage in stolen bases. Last year, around 60%. Uh, the guy is getting older. I mean, here's, he's 34 years old. Probably that speed is coming down a little bit. Uh, and at a 60% stolen brace rate, uh, he's going to help you some, but they may not keep giving him the green light all season. So, Uh, Yeah, some help with stolen bases from Juan Pierre, but I'd also be a bit careful about uh, the fact that he's not going to do anything for you in terms of extra base hits and not a thing uh, in terms of on-base percentage.
0: Could be, Nick, though, that he could also score you some runs, couldn't he?
2: Well, that's true. He'll score some runs, and if he's uh, uh, hitting toward the top of the lineup, which he certainly is, uh, he makes good contact, so he's going to be on base. He's going to score some runs. Uh, Not someone to turn your back on, but I I wouldn't count on those uh, 60 stolen bases again.
0: No, I think 60 seems a little excessive to hope for, but do you think maybe 25 is within range?
2: Certainly, very, very definitely. 25 would be within range if he continues to get playing time. All
0: right. Uh, speaking of stolen bases, Nick, our Batting Buyer's Guide column this week looks at teams whose stolen base opportunity rates have actually changed from last year. And one of the teams mentioned in the column is the Chicago Cubs. Uh, last season, they ran about 4% of the time, and this year that's up to 8%. Of course, it's early going and things could change, but there's a new manager in Wrigley, Dale fame, and stolen base opportunity we know is often a function of manager philosophy so that seems to suggest that anybody who can run on the Cubs should be raised a notch or two in stolen base expectations, and Starlin Castro certainly seems to lead that parade.
2: Yeah, very definitely. I mean, Starlin Castro stole just over 20 bases last year. He's already got seven, and Dale Swain seems to be be willing to let uh, Starlin Castro go on the base paths. So far, he's got a 39% uh, SBO percentage. Uh, Starlin Castro, we know, can hit. Uh, now, here's a guy who might steal 60 bases by the time the year is over if they continue letting him run at the current rate.
0: What about his other skills? Is he uh, he seems like a, pr- a pretty decent batting average. Guys, hitting around 360 as, a, as we speak.
2: Yeah, still, Other skills look strong. I mean, uh, XBA right now is around around 270, so that batting average is going to come down because he's got a, a huge 41% hit rate. But he showed last year that he can hit. I mean, here's a guy who's only 22 years old and uh, certainly has, uh, has a lot of uh, hitting skills behind him. And the other thing is he, he might actually begin to fill out a little bit and begin to produce some power, although that's certainly not happening yet.
0: No, he's got a, a PX of 50, a power index of 50, which means he's about half the league average in, in that regard. About half his balls are grounders, which sometimes can mess with the uh, expected batting average because a guy who can really run is going to get a few leg hits that the formulas sometimes don't account for.
2: Well, that's true. The other thing that's gonna, that might keep his stolen base percentage down is here's a guy who's currently hitting third in the, in the Cubs lineup, so he's uh, got seven RBIs. Right now the RBIs and the stolen bases are equal. Uh, and the fact that he's hitting uh, third in the lineup might, in fact, uh, prevent him from stealing some bases because he's going to have guys on base ahead of him, but Starlin Castro certainly looks like someone to keep your eye on this season, and in a keeper league, he's a, he's really a gem if you can grab him away from somebody at this point.
0: One other thing to like about him from a batting average perspective, Nick, is his contact rate solidly in the mid-80s, and he's even up close to 90% this year, so Starlin Castro, should he come available in your league or be mentioned in trade talks, certainly uh, somebody to look at. Uh, Let's switch over to St. Louis now. Last week, uh, Baseball HQ analyst Jock Thompson suggested we should be keeping an eye on a guy named Matt Carpenter, kind of a first baseman, third baseman, corner type guy. He was playing pretty regularly because Lance Berkman was out of the lineup, David Fries was out of the lineup. Now uh, we expected that with those players coming back, Carpenter would be either sent back down or be sitting on the bench, but Berkman's on the DL now, so should we be looking even harder at this Carpenter?
2: Yeah, very definitely keep an eye on Matt Carpenter. I mean, here's a guy that uh, uh, tends to to swing and miss a bit. Uh, Contact rate uh, so far in the majors this year is 79%. I at 0.17. So, you know, you might look at that and go, eh, I don't know about this guy, but... And uh, current batting average, 3.21, with a hit rate of 38%. That's going to come back down. But Doc Thompson points out some interesting things about Matt Carpenter. Here's a guy who's uh, a, a career minor leaguer up to this point in his career, but brings a, a considerable, uh, impressive line with him: 300 batting average in the minors, 13% walk rate, 86% contact rate, a 417 on base percentage in the minors. Here's a guy who's shown the ability to get on base. And the other thing that Jock points out is that St. Louis has a real uh, a real success rate in developing these kinds of utility players. Think about Alan Craig, who will be back from the DL uh, certainly at, at the end of the month, hopefully, and will will probably cut into Carpenter's time a little bit. But also David Freeze. Who wasn't expected to be too much and uh and certainly has turned into a very fine third baseman. So St. Louis has a uh, a reputation and ability to develop these kinds of uh, these kinds of ball players. So Matt Carpenter is someone to keep an eye on, and over the next couple of weeks, while he's playing regularly at first base, someone you might want to get onto a roster.
0: But his first twenty at bats or so I think he had five or six extra base hits, so he can certainly swing the bat. And sometimes as a guy gets into that age where he's kind of hitting his physical peak, all he needs is a chance and sometimes he can really pay off.
2: Yeah, very definitely. And another thing to keep an eye on with Matt Carpenter, he's already got 11 RBIs, and you say, well, he's gotten lucky, that's early in the season, but we had an interesting column earlier in the week that looked at early success rates, and one of the things that, that tended to pan out uh, for guys, are, uh, batting average certainly changed a lot, guys who hit a bunch of home runs, tailed off, stolen bases, tailed off, but, but RBIs, guys who started hot in RBIs sometimes tended to stay that way uh, as they progressed through the season.
0: And I wonder if that's because the manager sees a guy driving in lots of runs and says, I'll keep giving him chances to score lots of runs and drive them in. Indeed. Staying in St. Louis, Nick finally talking about pitchers in his early buy low targets column. Uh, BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher analyst Stephen Nickrand mentioned Adam Wainwright of the Cardinals. This is a really good pitcher who was off to a really bad start. After two f- starts, he had 11.42 RA, a 162 whip, and he got rocked again this week. Is Adam Wainwright still worth targeting?
2: Yeah, Adam Wainwright got walked again Thursday night, and uh, you know so now his, his ERA actually came down. It's now 9.88, but he's got three losses. Here's a guy that a lot of people are going to start bailing on. He's coming back from time of John's surgery, and certainly a lot of folks are going to say, let's get rid of Adam Wainwright. But when you look at the skills, the skills are certainly there. He's having a lot of bad luck early in the season. Here's a guy whose current BPV is 121, striking out nine batters per nine innings, command rate of 3.5, so not walking very many. Just some, just some bad things that have gotten into his mix early. A 35% hit rate, only a 41% strand rate, in part because a lot of the fly balls have been leaving the yard. A 36% home run per fly rate. Those things are not going to continue. Adam Rainwright is much too good a pitcher for that. His luck's going to turn around. Uh, current XERA 3.31. Here's a guy who could be really productive in terms of his skills once things settle down a bit and uh, he gets into a groove. So I would say Adam Wainwright is someone to keep, keep your eye on. If he gets dropped in a league that you're in, someone to pick up. Uh, if he gets mentioned in trade talks, again, I think someone to uh, to see if you can buy low on, as Steven said.
0: So to wrap up, I think Adam Wainwright definitely a target, probably Starlin Castro as well, and Matt Carpenter, Juan Pierre, a couple of guys to keep an eye on but don't, don't run right out and, and break open your piggy bank.
2: A good summary, I think.
0: Okay. Nick, thanks very much. We'll catch up with you again in a week. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the director of skills analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move on to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Young pitchers and old hitters this week, Patrick. And we can start with the young pitchers in Boston. They're having a lot of trouble, not just in pitching, but with hitting. But when we talk about their pitching difficulties, I guess what I want to know is, is Clay Buchholz the answer, or is he still part of the question?
4: Well, I think he's still part of the question. He certainly had nice ERAs, especially in 2010, but also in 2011. Buchholz's challenge, though, is that he walks too many guys for the number he strikes out. His control has always been around three and a half walks per nine innings, But his dominance has only been six to six and a half. And that gives him a command rate below 2.0, the number we like to see, the minimum number we like to see strikeouts to walks. And that's true even in his 2010 season that most people really like. His 233 ERA was actually a result of an 82% strand and a 26% hit rate. If we look at 2011, his injury-shortened season, uh, he was very much the same pitcher. It's just that his ERA was over a run higher because his hit rate and strand rate were more realistic. and They were still favorable to him at 28% hit rate, 77% strand. So his expected ERA has always been around four. That's probably where we should be looking for Buck Holtz, despite his great ground ball tendencies a 51% or higher ground ball rate each of the last three seasons.
0: Yeah, I had him uh, right after the season right after he closed with a no-hitter, and that really got him on everybody's radar. And he's consistently managed to underperform his uh, expected ERA, especially, like you said, in 2010. The question is, is outperforming your expected ERA a skill, or is it just pure luck?
4: Well, I think sometimes you see some extreme examples where it's a very high dominance or a very low dominance that causes a variance there. But Buckholz's numbers fall right in line uh, with everything else. The only thing that's unusual about his His line is the 51% ground ball rate, and that is taken into account with the expected ERA. So I think, you know, an ERA right around four, maybe a little under, is a very reasonable expectation. Another risk with Buckholz in head-to-head leagues is that he's very inconsistent. He had 43% PQS dominant start last year, but only 21% were disasters. Well, 20% disaster is really high for someone that you're counting on to be an anchor of your staff, and in head-to-head leagues, that can really destroy your week. He's also had a little
0: bit of luck on the home run per nine side as well, and the home run per fly ball rate has bounced around 16% a few years ago, 7% so far this year. So all in all, it sounds like what we're saying, Matt, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Clay Buchholz is an okay pitcher, but he's not the kind of real solid staff ace that's going to solve what's going on with the Red Sox.
4: Exactly. He's not the 2.33 ERA of 2010 that's going to anchor your staff that many people perceive him to be. He's definitely a guy worth more because of his name than his actual performance.
0: The New York Yankees uh, have had better pitching than a lot of people expected they would. They had a bit of a competition in the spring training time frame and then uh, decided that Ivan Nova was going to be one of their starters, and he's had a good start so far this year.
4: He's a very similar pitcher to Buckholtz, without uh, all the publicity, even though he's a Yankee. Also a 53% ground ball rate, 51% in 2010. So very similar to Buckholtz Doesn't strike out as many guys, less than six strikeouts per nine innings, but has better control that is improving. His control rate was 2.9 walks per nine innings in 2011. So the difference is he hasn't had the extraordinary hit rate help or strand rate hindrance that um, Buckholtz has. He's a 29% hit rate, 74% strand in 2011. His second half, though, really showed great gains. He only walked 2.3 batters in the second half, struck out 6.2 for a command rate of 2.7. So the question with Nova is can he maintain that second half of 2011, or will he regress back to the first half of 2011? And I think so far in 2012 you have to say that Nova looks like uh, that pitcher we saw in the second half of 2011.
0: He does. He's uh, striking out 10.4 per nine innings and only walking 1.4, and of course that's only in a couple of starts, but boy, I'd like to see a 7.5 command ratio. That That's lots of room to shrink back to normal while still being
4: really good especially when you have that Yankee offense behind him. I mean, we don't chase wins, but if you are going to look at two different pitchers, you have one for the Yankees and one for the Twins, even though the Twins just beat the Yankees, you're going to take the Yankee hurler every time. So even though we don't want to chase wins, with all things being equal, you certainly would take a Yankee or Red Sox over a second-tier team. And the fact that Nova has that offense and good defense behind him is definitely a plus for his statistics.
0: And we should point out that he might be out there on shallow league waiver wires or free agent pools because a 4.15 ERA to date and a 1.54 whip looks really bad. He's been a $0 pitcher essentially despite two wins, but a lot of that is just bad luck. Uh, We mentioned a a 41% hit rate so far this year. That's going to drive up his walk plus hit ratio even though he's holding the walks down so well.
4: Well, here's a guy who kind of got no respect over the winner, that he wasn't a hot prospect. He seemed to overachieve in the second half in everyone's eyes. And, yes, he did have a 75% strand rate in the second half. But when we look at his strikeout-to-walk ratio, his expected ERA of 3.58 pretty much supports the 3.35 he posted in the second half. So here's, believe it or not, a Yankee kind of flying under the radar because even though he didn't have the pedigree, he had the performance. And he had the skills development that we really haven't seen in Buckholz yet.
0: Another young pitcher, Jake Arrieta in the American League East, pitching for the Orioles. He came up uh, a few years ago, very hyped young pitcher. A lot of people jumped on him. A lot of people had drafted him in farm leagues or in in minor league drafts. And he didn't really do that well. And here he is this year. He's off to a much better start. And again, the question is, can he sustain uh, what has been a decent start for him so far?
4: Well, the answer lies in if he can get the ball over the plate. In 2011, he went 9-4 in the first half, but his skills weren't really that great. Uh, He was walking 4.3 batters per nine innings, and that got even worse when he had his arm problems in the second half. In the second half, he also had a horrible home run per fly ball rate. Overall, for the year, it was 15%, which should normalize. Uh, He has a nice strikeout rate at seven batters per nine innings, but the question is, can his walk stay within? And so far, he's uh, been okay with his uh, control, his Ground ball rate last year was 46%, which is solid. So this guy does have all the makings of a good skilled pitcher. He just isn't going to have the same level of team behind him as Nova.
0: Yeah, I I think this is a pitcher that you have to be really careful before you go to roster. He's until he gets the ball over the plate, as you said, He's, he seems like a very dangerous guy. He's got very gaudy numbers to date, 266 ERA, a whip well under one, but boy, that sure looks like the function of luck rather than of skill. His X ERA is about a run higher. I don't know about Jake Arrieta. If you, if you are in a position where your team, you might need to make a gamble or you're rebuilding for the future, maybe this is a guy you toss the dice on, but if you're being competitive, this, is, this could be a disaster waiting to happen.
4: Yeah, this is one of those high-risk, high-potential reward situations. And while it's early in the year to do that, this is the kind of guy, if he is on your waiver wire, especially if you can stash him, uh, he probably won't be on the waiver wire because he's been so hot early. But he may have a couple struggling starts. But now's the time to get him because you get a whole year's worth if he does pan out. Uh, Compared to some of the other things on some waiver wires, at least he has the upside there that all he has to do is one skill away is get that control under under control, no pun intended there, and uh, then he would be an excellent pitcher. If he can get that walk rate down to three-and-a-half batters for nine innings, he's got a solid pitching background here with that ground ball rate.
0: From young pitchers, we do move to old hitters, and one of the oldest ones in the big leagues now is Ichiro Suzuki. He had a pretty poor year last year by his standards, but so far this year he's off to a decent start. He's batting .263, but he's got uh, got some upside here. Well, Ichiro
4: had a 30% hit rate, which is pretty much the norm around the league, except if you're Ichiro Suzuki. With his speed, his hit rate has averaged about 36% over his career. So for him, a 30% hit rate is very low, and he's actually improved his contact rate to 90%, and that's up from 87% in 2010. So Ichiro had an unlucky year, even though his skills were just as solid as before. His speed... We also get him for his stolen bases. His stolen bases uh, were there mostly because he's running more often, but his speed index that we use at Baseball HQ is falling the last four years but still is 24% over the average. So I think if he keeps running frequently, keeps making the solid contact, has been very consistent here across his career in that 90% area, there's no reason to think that Ichiro can't hit 300 again as he had for the previous four years before 2011.
0: Well, so far this year, his expected batting average is at two ninety two. and I think when we say that speed is a young man's game, it's generally true, but it's one of those rules or one of those sayings that often you have to look a little past it. Ichiro Suzuki keeps himself in very good shape. He's very uh, devoted to flexibility exercises and those kind of things, so expecting him to lose his speed at the same rate everybody else does might be a bit of a mistake. This guy can still run.
4: He sure can, and like I said, keeps himself very limber, very astute, very smart ball player that's going to get the most out of his skills. He's got a 60% ground ball rate, for example, in 2011. We don't see that at all from hitters, and certainly not 300 hitters. But he's smart enough to know he's got to put the bat in the ball and use his speed, which is still his best asset.
0: And speaking of speed being his best asset, Coco Crisp in Oakland Had to move over to left field to accommodate Joana Cespedes. And so far, Crisp is uh, kind of struggling a little bit. His batting average is well under 200. He has no home runs. A couple of bags, but man, he hasn't been much of a player so far this year.
4: Well, on these early sample sizes, we don't know what we're going to get. But Coco Crisp certainly has proven himself as a serviceable major league performer, especially in the stolen base category at a career-high 49 in 2011. He may not reach that point again, but he did have an 88% contact rate in 2011. So we see his batting skills are still solid. It's just his hit rate was only 29%, which is far below his normal average. So we would expect his batting average to rebound. His expected batting average was 278 in 2011. We do see a three-year decline in walk rate, which concerns us a little bit, going from 14% in 2009 all the way down to 7% in 2011. And I think what you see is pitchers now being more willing to challenge him. At one time, Crisp had a lot of pop in his bat, had a PX of 99 in 2010 down to 72 in 2011. We wouldn't expect his home runs to shoot up again, but I think pitchers are more willing to challenge him now and therefore he's not getting as many free passes, and he's going to have to put the bat in the ball more often. He's another guy with a stolen base opportunity of over 40%, just like Ichiro. And uh, to me, that tells me that if he keeps getting the green light, fine, but there's really a lot of negativity. If he gets a hamstring, gets some kind of injury bug again, he's not going to be able to steal. So this is definitely a very much a health risk here with Coco Crisp
0: kind of a peculiar line the last few years as well his speed index has gone down from 155 in 2009 all the way down to 102 while his stolen bases have been climbing steadily from 13 in 2009 to almost 50 last year so this is definitely a function of stolen base opportunity and notwithstanding uh, Suspedes's hot start with the bat this is a team that's going to struggle to score runs Coco Chris might uh might be wearing his track shoes out there.
4: Well, they might. The other part of those stolen base numbers are his at-bats. He only had 180 at-bats in 2009 and 320 in 2010 using his major league equivalents. And 531 in 2009, he's actually healthy. But even going back to 2007, the last year he had over 500 at-bats, it was almost identical number of bats and only 28 stolen bases. The big difference is stolen base opportunities. And the question is, are the A's going to continue to run at the same pace and give Chris the green light? If they're out of the race early, I think, yeah, they have something for the fans to watch is Coco Crisp to run. But it also remains very possible, even though they just re-signed him, this would be exactly the type of person you'd see. Uh, I think a playoff contender would be interested in if they had an injury in the outfield. We saw Chris Young go down earlier this week, Brett Gardner with the Yankees. Um, I think if this was September or August and one of those injuries happens, you know, Coco Crisp would be the kind of guy that uh, those teams would like to acquire. And before I let you go, uh, Matt, I have to ask you about Cespedes.
0: Uh, This is a guy who had a lot of hype coming in from Cuba, kind of surprised everybody by signing in Oakland when, of course, they thought he would sign more on the East Coast, decided not to. Four home runs already, 12 RBIs, got a couple of bags, but he's only hitting .222. So what do we make of Yanis Cespedes?
4: Well, I think this is uh, sort of a right-handed Adam Dunn or maybe a little bit better than a Mark Reynolds with a little bit more speed. Uh, his contact rate is only 62%, which really m- concerns us, but his hit rate so far is only 25%, so his expected batting average is 275. His power index is actually higher than his batting average at 235. So, uh, But he does have some plate patience. Even though, he's not, even though he is striking out a lot, he's also walking a lot, 10% of the time, especially for a new player in the league. It'll be really interesting to see if he can learn to lay off that breaking ball out of the zone because he's obviously... Uh, swinging and missing a lot despite having solid plate patience. And those are kinds of skills that remind me of Adam Dunn just at a younger age and the fact that he hits right-handed.
0: Yeah, I think uh, this is still a work in progress. Uh, he's being fooled. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And the question is going to be, are the pitchers going to be able to fool him even more? readily as the season wears on and as the book on him gets known around the league or is he going to be able to adjust more quickly to what they are doing to him and and maybe start making some corrections and get that uh get that batting average back up into where you want it to be
4: an interesting thing i uh heard watching him one game was how in cuba he's used to facing a lot of breaking ball you have a lot of uh older pitchers who get by on their guile so they didn't think he'd have a problem adjusting to the breaking pitches in the states, but he may be, have some trouble with the extremely hard fastballs, the control of that breaking stuff, to be able to put the hard slider uh, off the plate. Whereas he's seen more of the of the soft tossing junk. So it was really interesting comparison they were making the Oakland, the pitchers Oakland will face compared to the pitchers he faced in Cuba.
0: Just a note that uh, among players who have more than 30 at-bats so far this year, uh, Cespedes has the third-highest power index, trailing only Mike Napoli and Nolan Reimold, who's been a surprise in and of himself. Matt, you'll have your market, you'll have your market pulse commentary later in the show. What's your topic this week?
4: This week we're going to talk about being careful not to overmanage the categories. Uh, we all know, being veteran roto players, that we we love to make trades. We love to think about them we love to analyze our weaknesses and our categories but we have to be real careful not to overdo it at this stage of the game to be looking at individual categories because injuries and so many things can change it so quickly
0: all right matt thanks very much for doing this catch up with you again in a week's time look
4: forward to it patrick
0: matt beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our american league commentator here at baseball hq radio our feature interview with john norman of fantasy squared is next you're listening to baseball hq radio he levels the bat a couple of times. Shaw kicks and he
2: fires. Rose swings. Turn
0: it! Turn it! Get out! Get out! welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. It's our pleasure now to be joined by John Norman, one of the co-founders of a new website called Fantasy Squared, which basically allows you to invest in fantasy baseball teams. John, thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio.
5: Thanks, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be with you. How long has Fantasy Squared been up and running? Uh, So this is our beta season just now. We just launched a beta version for this baseball season, and so we've been up less than a month.
0: And tell us how Fantasy Squared works.
5: So the basic idea is that Fantasy Squared is designed to be fantasy, fantasy baseball. And so the way the game works is it's a market-style game where you invest in those teams that you think are likely to win. So you can either be playing for your own private league um, as a complement to your own private fantasy league, or we have an option where you can play alongside with expert leagues. And the idea is at the end of the season the team that wins will be worth $100, will be 100 fake fantasy dollars. And so the person who can most quickly and accurately determine who's going to win, which team's the best, um, and invests more responsibly, will, and ends up with the highest portfolio, wins the Fantasy squared League.
0: Okay, so give us a concrete example using Tout Wars. I met you at the Tout Wars draft in Manhattan, so uh, there's three Tout Wars leagues, National, American, and Mixed. Uh, so s- somebody just bets on one of those teams to win uh, win their league, or how does that work?
5: Exactly. So now each team, each, each fantasy baseball team that is in Tout Wars or any other league for that value has a share price. And so now this share price will fluctuate up and down throughout the season as a result of, um as a result of you know what people think of the team and how much people buy or sell of that team at the end of the season the tout team that actually wins the tout league will be worth hundred dollars and so the tout team all the other tout teams will go to zero right and so the, this sort of drives the. so this is the basis on which you're investing and so what this means is that over the course of the season each tout team will now have a corresponding price which should correspond to the likelihood that team has of winning the league for the season. And so this does two things. For the um, it essentially gives each tout team you know, kind of a clout score, if you will, that lets every owner know at every time what the market thinks of its team and these prices will fluctuate in response to you know, how well the team's doing, if it makes any trades um, that you know improve its teams, whatever, if it moves up or down in the fanics, right? So essentially it serves as a clout score. In that regard, and then from the gameplay point of view, by trading, you know, it rewards those fantasy players who have more insight or sort of know more about fantasy sports, if you will. So the quicker I can identify that Ubaldo Jimenez, for example, is going to be a great player this year and carry Team Davit to victory, the more, the earlier I invest in in your team. If your team then goes on to win, you know, I will I will do better in the corresponding fantasy squared league
0: but it isn't necessarily just getting in early it's getting in at the right time depending on what the market says so if if my team is terrible in the early going and a bunch of people uh, don't want to invest in it that might be the time to buy in and then as the price fluctuates I may go up over 50 or down under 30 you just want to get in at the bottom of a team that's going to do well at the end right
5: exactly so it's really about sort of having better fantasy judgment if you will than the rest of your league mates or the rest of your fantasy square league mates so you might if Everyone else thinks your team isn't so hot or is, is too hot. It's sort of recognizing that sort of true level of value and being able to sort of capitalize on sort of your more accurate forecast, if you will. And also, you know, with, with for, so this, the game works the exact same way for private leagues if you're doing this alongside your own individual league. Um, for expert leagues this season, we also have the added feature that we're going to add in um, where you can also buy and sell on the results of trades. So anytime there's a trade um, between any of the two experts, you can sort of buy or sell which team you think got the better end of that trade. So essentially the whole idea behind it here is that, you know, if you think of fantasy sports as a game of information, right, and a game of judgment and how frustrating it is sometimes, at least for me, I know, when, you know, let's say you're in a snake draft and there's a player you want or you think, you know, was overvalued and he went too high in the draft you don't really get to use that knowledge. You might have like a meaningful, actionable thesis that this player went too high, but you can't really sort of utilize that. Or when two other teams in your league make a trade and one of the teams completely rips off the other owner, you, you know that as a fantasy. You might say, aha, I know this. I, if only there was some way I could benefit from that knowledge. Well, so the idea here is that with Fantasy Squared, now you can. Now it sort of gives you the opportunity to trade and use, that, use your sort of fantasy judgment. You know, in response to all of these league happenings.
0: Right. So just so I'm clear, when when I go into to the Fantasy Squared website and I'd log on to the um Tout Wars American League and I want to buy shares in my team in in a team, they're going to be priced somewhere between zero and a hundred because a hundred is what the payout price is. And So I'm going to buy uh, Ron Chandler's team, and it might cost me 55 bucks because the market seems to think he's slightly more likely to win. But I'm buying these shares off of other players. I'm not buying them off of uh, Fantasy Squared, or am I?
5: The, the prices, are the, it doesn't correspond to real money, but you get 300000 fake dollars to invest for your portfolio over the course of the season. And then you actually are buying these shares from the bank. So the idea here is we didn't want players to be handicapped by any liquidity issues so if you wanted to buy Chandler, but there wasn't a willing seller you know you still have the ability to buy so basically you can buy or sell anytime essentially from the bank and in so doing that will move the price up or down but essentially it allows anyone to buy or sell any team they want at any time
0: who sets the bank price
5: initial the way the prices start they initially just start out as so if there are ten teams in the league um... let's say all the teams would initially just start out at $10, right? So each team is just given an initial chance, um, an equal chance of winning. And then the more, in, in response to being bought or sold, the prices move up or down. So the, price is, the actual price the team will be at will be a reflection of, you know, how popular that team is, how many people have bought it, minus how many people have sold it, and that will be what's moving the price.
0: Okay, but I'm still buying from the bank, so how, how is the bank looking at the buying and selling of shares and setting resetting the price every day or however often presuming after every transaction
5: the way it's working is that for every hundred shares that's bought of a security of, of a team of a fantasy baseball team the price of the stock moves up one dollar
0: okay well that makes sense
5: so if you buy a thousand shares you are going to be moving the price up and down you know and it'll have gone up ten dollars if you buy a thousand shares
0: who are some of the betting favorites so far in the Tout Wars draft?
5: There are three expert leagues through Tout that we've partnered with. We've t- partnered with Tout, AL Mixed, and NL, and then we've also partnered with a few other leagues, um, the Hardball Times Fantasy Square uh, Fangraphs League. Um, and so starting with the Tout AL League, right now Chris Liss, has actually, um, Chris Liss is in the lead and has actually had a pretty steady lead um, for most of this. Um, since the since the draft, um, Andy Berens and Matt Berry are sort of bringing up two and three, and then Ron Chandler's been been you know in the middle. I think he's right around I think he's right around eighth right now. What about the other leagues? In NL, uh, our fantasy square zone Derek Hardy, and from baseball perspective, is actually um, has a pretty big lead right now. Um, he's followed up by Steve Gartner, Scott Pianowski, and Nate Rabbits, and then Tristan Cockroft. Um, and that's in the NL League. And then let me tell you, for the mixed-league, Seth Trackman is out in front of Corey Schwartz and David Ganos, uh, then Derek Van Reifer and Eric Mack. Um, and then you, Patrick, are sitting in sixth place right now.
0: Well, good for me. I'm going to surprise I'm going to surprise everybody and, and uh, turn a huge profit at the end, I hope. This is Baseball HQ Radio Patrick David here with John Norman from Fantasy Squared. Uh, John, this kind of sounds like in trade some people might know the website that lets people speculate in various markets like the presidential election, the Dow Jones average, Republican vice presidential choice and so on. How does Fantasy Squared compare with that in-trade concept?
5: Yeah, so that's a great question. It's very similar in terms of conceptually how it works. I mean, obviously, like, that, that's basically the same model, that's the same payout. If you're familiar with that, you'll be able to jump into Fantasy Squared very quickly. Obviously, there are a few key differences. Um, you know, in Fantasy Squared, you're dealing with sort of, you're, you're, the, you're not using real money to play. You know, these are fake dollar amounts, and then these share prices don't actually pay out real amounts. So the idea is, you know, that in your Fantasy Squared League, there would be a Fantasy Squared League winner. And then, you know, just as in regular leagues, you know, each individual league determines the prize structure and the entry fee. You know, the same setup would work for Fantasy Squared. Um, But the difference, again, is that these prices don't correspond to, you know, you're not betting with real money in the Fantasy Squared League. Um, and then the other, the other big difference, obviously, is when you use in-trade. Um, you know, I still want to hope for the day when you know, I can be going on to in-trade and betting on you know, my team, things about you know, yourself. But the idea here is, obviously, you get to sort of bet on your own personalized team, right? your own personalized league. So it's like a customizable in-trade, if you will, for your own league.
0: Is playing for real money part of your plan for the future?
5: The way we see it is that the fantasy squared league winner, right, you know, individual leagues can certainly put up real money and play for, you know, real, you know, dollar amounts, if you will, right, when you, when you create a, fan, a regular fantasy league on Yahoo, right, you know, the amount that, you know, winning your private league is worth is, you know, up to the league participants, right, you know, Yahoo just tells you who won the Fantasy League, and then based on, you know, the individual league and based on what everyone decides is a reasonable entry fee and how they want to structure the payouts, you know, they give out prizes as such. We would see a sort of analogous league structure system. So Fantasy Squared will just uh, tell you sort of who won your Fantasy Squared League, and then to the extent that, you know, as a league, you want to have a $100 entry fee, a $5 entry fee, or whatever, you know, that, that's up to the individual leagues. You know, obviously with these expert leagues, one of the things we're going to be excited about and looking forward to going forward would be the idea of attaching sort of prizes to these expert leagues, where it's not just your own individual fantasy league that you're playing fantasy squared with, but so the idea is that the winner of the tout AL fantasy squared league, you know, ha- attaching some prize to that. Um, and so as we move forward past our beta season, that's, you know, something we're going to be very excited to start doing.
0: You mentioned earlier that uh, owners can set up uh, private home leagues as part of the Fantasy Squared structure. How do they do that?
5: Exactly. So if you go to fantasysquared.com, you then request an invite. Um, This is changing very shortly. Um, For the time being, though, you still have to request an invite, and then the system will get back to you very shortly. And then you come back to the site, enter in your invite code and you can create a league and so essentially what you do is it's a very simple interface um, you come into the site and you you enter in the team names of all of the teams in your league that people will be trading on and you enter in the email addresses of all of your league mates who it belongs to and the system will send out you know an email with a creative fantasy squared league that has you know all of the teams in your league you know set with an even price and you know as you're ready you, you can either control it um, You can say start, you know, you have the ability to start the season whenever you want, or it can just begin for you, um, and you can begin and start trading on your own private league very easily.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like if uh, I set up a, a fantasy squared league based on the Regina Rotisserie Baseball League in Saskatchewan in Western Canada, people who aren't in that league can't then use our league as the basis for a speculative market?
5: I mean, certainly you could if you wanted to sort of invite other people. You, you would have that, right? But for, for most of us who just play in a private league and the idea is that only the people in the league would sort of care about the results of the league that intensely, well, you would just presumably invite all of your other league participants to join this Fantasy Square League. Um, if you felt the need for security, you could attach just a password so that no one else could see what was going on. And then you, you guys in your private league would all of a sudden have a corresponding Fantasy Squared League for, for your league with prices and, you know, you could start trading right off that.
0: Do you guys uh, anticipate extending a Fantasy Squared into fantasy football, which is the holy grail of all fantasy sports?
5: Yes, absolutely. Um, so this this baseball season is sort of our, you know, has been our, our beta version while we're still, um, we're still sort of expanding our partnerships and refining it and everything. But, yes, we think fantasy squared is equally applicable to, you know, any fantasy sport for that matter. I mean, one of the things that's been surprising to me, actually, is so when we first started thinking about the idea, the idea, you know, in our head, you know, what was really exciting about it was this idea of information and this idea that, you know, isn't it frustrating when I have fantasy baseball insights that I can't actually put to use in my own regular fantasy league? And so giving people an outlet to sort of show off, you know, their knowledge and, you know, with expert leagues to show off that they know as much as the, per- as the experts, right? Um, but one of the things we've seen so far with these initial leagues that have been set up and the way people are using it is what people really seem to like is sort of seeing the score that their own team gets and, you know, observing this almost like a clout score for their, for their team, right? Like people are so attached to their league, it, like their team, it's like it's their baby. And so wanting to, you know, getting that sense of satisfaction that their team gets a higher score than their friends or seeing how it moves. Um, has been has been a really um, you know exciting and interesting thing to see. So we might even be expanding that aspect of it as well um, to give you sort of greater visibility around not just you know not just what your team price is, but how many people like your team in that way, and sort of giving you sort of you know better information about how much the rest of the league thinks truly thinks of your team.
0: On the other hand, if you're 11th in your league and, and 12th in how much people think of you, it could be kind of depressing.
5: Sure. Well, I mean, there, so there are a couple ways to look at that, right? I mean, obviously, it's always tough if, you know, those fantasy seasons that don't turn out too well for us, you know, are always tough. You know, the glass half full way of looking is to think that, you know, if you're out of your regular league, right? Like, you might just be taken out of your league because you were the victim of some unfortunate injury lock, and so this league is, you, this season is pretty much lost all hope for you. Um, but, you know, with Fantasy Square, like, don't lose hope, you can still sort of show off your and, you know, continue to play. And so even though your regular Fantasy League, you know, might, fantasy season might be gone, you could still sort of continue to play and potentially win your Fantasy Square League. And so there's that aspect. And so another way, you know, in, in some private leagues we've talked to, some of the people, you know, one of the things they one of the things they complain about sometimes is, you know, that point, you know, in baseball, you know, after the all-star break when it's pretty clear that some teams are out of it and, you know, some owners start paying less and less attention and it becomes harder to trade and whatever. And so, you know, one of the aspects here that's nice is this is sort of an added reason to keep, for owners to pay attention and stay involved all season long and sort of enhance sort of league integrity, if you will.
0: Yeah, I guess if you were sitting in 11th spot and your shares were only worth eight or nine bucks, you could buy a bunch of them and then uh, work to improve your team, maybe uh, cash out that way and win your Fantasy Squared League, even if you can't win your Fantasy League League.
5: Sure, exactly, right? And you can, can obviously, when you're playing Fantasy Squared, you don't just, I mean, people seem to like buying their own teams. You know, it's been interesting to observe. But you can also buy, um, you can buy and sell the the teams of everyone else in your league. And, you know, you also have the opportunity, um, we sort of came up with an interesting way to sell short. So if you have, you know that friend in your league who's way too smug and gloating and thinks his team's the best, but you recognize he 's just been sort of lucky you can sort of you can sort of pick by his team not to win um, to lose and sort of make money off of you know make money off of the uh, the league in that regard
0: well, how do you prevent if that 's possible? How do you prevent? Guys, from doing shenanigans like uh, you know, I've got I've got a league where I've got a clear leader, and there's no way he can get beat unless I happen to help out the guy in second by giving him Albert Pujols for a bag of magic beans. You know how do how do you govern for that?
5: So in, it's it's a great question, and it's something we've really been thinking about. Um, so there are two answers. So one, the impact in Fantasy Square, generally speaking, though this is still you know we're new, right? So our analytics will will continue to expand, but generally. Speaking, there's greater reward to be had from buying teams to win than from buying teams not to win. Um, so that, in, in one aspect, sort of offers a safeguard. The other, on the other hand, you know, it's something leagues, I think, have to worry about in general, right? So the, the worry about collusion. If, um, you know, if I'm out of it this year, why can't I just go to the team that's in second place and offer to give him my remaining, you know, my remaining good players, if, and then we, we split the league's winnings? Right, there, I feel like there's always that risk of collusion, and so the idea here is, you know, the way this is prevented in most leagues is you have, you know, you have a commissioner who stays on top of this, or you might have in your league constitution some sort of requirements about what types of trades are allowed or not. Um, and then the same mechanism here would work here, right? You know, commissioners could then would then say, you know, hey, that looks fishy, right? There's no more of a sort of an opportunity. The same motive exists. The same opportunity to sell you know, to dump my players to the second-place team, whether whether it's because the, the winner of the league is going to give me a kickback or whether it's to, like, help win the Fantasy square League, that same opportunity exists. And sort of the burden relies on the commissioner and the league constitution as it does always to, to prevent collusion.
0: With one important difference, if if I want to collude, if I'm an a also-ran team and I want to collude with the second-place team to split the winnings by beating the first-place team, I have to go ask him to do that and it seems like if I've if I've got money in a secondary league and in a derivative league like a fantasy squared league, I don't need anybody else's help to participate in this, and I don't have to do it in a real obvious fashion. A decent rotisserie player, if you're playing in rotisserie format, can selectively drop guys onto certain categories that can really affect the outcome of the race, with the intent of making the making the money on the f- derivative league rather than in the real league. But it's not always real obvious that that's what's going on.
5: Sure, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting thing that we've been, we've been sort of monitoring, right, and, and we intend to. Um, I think the same thing sort of... I guess, I guess from that point of view, the ability to... I guess if you're saying that you wouldn't actually have to then tell the other person that you're trying to help him, you know, you could sort of just help that person without letting him know. Um, I think it's still... Yeah, I mean, it, it's still sort of collusion one way or the other, right? And so, to the extent that, you know, everyone in your league is now sort of seeing, you know, your Fantasy Square League as well, you know, it sort of adds an informational, you know, viewpoint. Like, people, people could see that, right? So, it's the same, you know, it, it, in certain instances, right? I mean, potentially it raises the threshold for sort of the active commissioners sort of worry about these collusionary things. Um. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's still, it's still sort of collusion, and you sort of think that people that play fantasy sports, you know, I mean, I think there are lots of ways in a regular league where if you really ha- were trying to be sneaky um, and collude with the owner and sort of drop players when their waiver pick is high or whatever, you know, you could do that. I mean, I think the reason most people play fantasy sports isn't, isn't for that, and to the extent that happens on the margin, you know, we hope commissioners can sort of keep that and prevent that from happening.
0: Good enough, uh, John Norman. How do people go and sign up for Fantasy Squared? They get to play right away, don't they?
5: Um, so, yeah, so there are two ways. So if you want to sign up and, you know, play alongside one of these expert leagues, one of the tout leagues or the hardball times, and sort of, you know, have your chance to prove whether you know as much as the experts do, you can just go to fantasysquared.com, uh, sign up right away, and join, and join an expert league. Once you're there, you can either, if you don't want to play in the expert leagues, but you do just want to use this as a private league, you know, for your own league, you think it would be fun to sort of see what your team's share price is and, you know, trade that in that way, you can either go to fantasysquare.com again and then request an invite, and, you know, within a day you'll get an invite allowing you to sort of create a, create a league for your own Fantasy Square League and set it up and begin trading right away. Um, or if you, if you want to do both, you can go to fantasysquare.com, join in expert leagues, and then once you're inside and you've started trading in an expert league, you can also, um, you'll have an option there to create your own league. And, you know, you can create your own league and set it up for your own private league.
0: It's very imaginative, John. Uh, Congratulations on coming up with this innovative idea. You can check out Fantasy Squared at www.fantasysquared.com. It's all one word, Fantasy Squared. So uh, give it a shout and check it out. John, thanks very much for doing this. It's very interesting, and we really appreciate that you took the time.
5: Yeah, thank you very much, Patrick. It was a pleasure, and I appreciate you having me on.
0: Our regular weekly commentaries are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Jackson with four runs batted in. Sends a fly ball to center field and deep. That's going to be way back and that's going to be gone. Reggie Jackson has hit his third home run of the game. Baseball
4: HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with his market pulse, managing editor Ray Murphy, pinch-hitting for BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler in the hole with Master Notes, and leading off the Minor League Minute, and BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon talking about
3: Arizona right-handed pitching prospect Archie Bradley. The Arizona Diamondbacks have acquired some of the best pitching prospects in baseball over the last several years, but perhaps none of them has more upside than Archie Bradley. Bradley was the seventh overall pick in the 2011 draft after dominating at Broken Arrow High School in Oklahoma. While Bradley is just 19 years old, he already features a plus 92 to 98 mile an hour fastball that tops out at 101 miles an hour. He complements the heater with an above average power curveball and also has the makings of at least an average changeup. Bradley is super athletic, and at 6'4", 225 pounds, he has the ideal power pitching frame to dominate in the majors. The Diamondbacks were fairly aggressive in posting Bradley to low A in the Midwest League, but so far he's been more than up to the challenge. In three starts for the South Bend Silverhawks, Bradley is 1-on-1 with a 1.13 ERA. He's walked 6 and struck out 22 in 16 innings. In his most recent outing, Bradley tossed 5 hitless innings while striking out 8 with no walks. Bradley will likely spend at least a couple months at low A, but he could be promoted to high A before the All-Star break. With Trevor Bauer, Pat Corbin, and Tyler Skaggs all dominating at double-A, and with Archie Bradley just behind them, the Arizona Diamondbacks should have plenty of quality pitching for years to come. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon.
0: Comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues is just another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge. All season long, Rob Gordon and Jeremy Deloney have reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups reports, and everything else you need to keep tabs on the rising stars of baseball. Jeremy's call-up reports this week have looked at Arizona outfielder A.J. Pollock, Boston right-hander Yunichi Tazawa, and others. So if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about the importance of not overmanaging your
4: categories. One of the most enjoyable parts of fantasy baseball is managing your team on a daily basis. For some, this means daily leagues where they can adjust their lineup each day depending on the matchups and depending on who's hot and who's not. This is fine, but you don't want to overmanage your team by making trades too early. That looks something like this. With a couple weeks of stats in the blocks, you might say, I really need stolen bases, and go out and make a deal for stolen bases, trading a good power hitter or another good part of your core roster, overmanaging before categories matter. We're so early in the season that categories won't be that important till midway through the season when you can see how your players really stack up. There's nothing worse than trading a big stolen base guy and then having your other stolen base guy you're relying on hit the DL or be out for the year. It's too early. Those risks are too high to overmanage your categories at this point. There's going to come a time where you may even want to make a trade that you get the worse of just to benefit yourself in certain categories. But that time is not until the All-Star break. At this early stage, resist the temptation to deviate from your plan. Stick to that plan and don't overreact to categories. You're better off building up a big lead in the categories you're strong in to have the depth to deal for what you need later because you won't know exactly what you need until that time. With the Market Pulse for Baseball HQ, I'm Matt Beagle.
0: Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is taking the week off, so pinch-hitting is BaseballHQ.com managing editor Ray Murphy talking about the perils of small samples early in the season.
1: Our fantasy games have come a long way from the days of manually compiled standings drawn from the Tuesday and Wednesday editions of USA Today. The web-enabling of our games has brought a multitude of benefits to our hobbies, but also some drawbacks. And the biggest of those drawbacks may be the ready availability of league standings in the early days and weeks of the season. For the first week or so of MLB games, it's easy for all of us to remember that our league standings are meaningless. You can literally find yourself first place one day and last place the next. But right at about this juncture of the season, as the standings start to settle just a little bit, impatient owners begin to get a little bit antsy about their standings position and about the performance of some slow starters that are contributing negatively to that standings position. But the fact is, it is still far too early to get worked up about individual performance, or your team's performance for that matter. In fact, the sample sizes involved are so small that sometimes you can't even tell which players are the ones you should be worried about. Here are two examples. Earlier this week, a poster on our forums made the following comment about Alejandro De Aza of the White Sox. Quote, I drafted Alejandro De Aza for his stolen base potential, and so far he has not run. Unquote. Through 43 at-bats, Deaza had one stolen base. If you drafted him looking for a cheap 25-30 to 30 steals and were further encouraged when it, he was installed as the leadoff hitter in Chicago, it seems logical to be disappointed by that one stolen base. But that reaction is a case of our eyes deceiving us. One metric we use at BaseballHQ.com to study speedsters is stolen base opportunity percentage. It's basically a shorthand for aggressiveness of a base stealer measuring stolen base attempts as a percentage of the times the batter reaches first base. If we look at Diaz's SBO, he has 11 hits and 5 blocks on this season for 16 total times on base. But 7 of those hits went for extra bases, leaving only 9 visits to first base. In addition to his one stolen base, he's also been caught stealing once. So running twice and 9 times on first base gives him a very reasonable 22% SBO. Elite speedsters tend to post an SBO of 20% or more, So DeAza's current level is right in line with someone who would reach that 25-30 to stolen base level. Admittedly, both of his stolen base attempts came in the first two games of the season, but most speedsters have those ebbs and flows in their production. That That inconsistency in stolen base productivity is what makes chasing stolen bases in head-to-head games so problematic. In short, your eyes might be disappointed in DeAza's single stolen base, but there's no cause for alarm here. For our second example, Kevin Euculus of the Red Sox is just one of many slow starters this year, but for some reason he has attracted negative attention practically right from opening day, as evidenced by this post in our forums during the season's opening week. Quote, Having acquired Uclus in two of my leagues, I am disheartened in his slow start. Yes, I know it's only four games. Unquote. As Uclus' struggles have continued for much of the past two weeks, or have they? More on that in a moment. The forum angst has continued, reaching its height with this post from earlier this week. Quote, serious question, is Uke 2012 equal to Adam Dunn of 2011? End quote. That comment was based on a sample size of 34 at-bats. And if you slice that sample even further, the story starts to change a bit. Ukeles went 2-for-20 for for a 100 batting average in his first five games. In his next five games, he went 5-for-18 for a 278 BA, including his first home run. His full-season BA of 184 still looks terrible, but now that his bat has awakened a bit, this is likely just a case where it will just take a little bit longer for that initial 2-for-20 to wash out of his year-to-date stats. 2-for-20s happen all the time, and in the middle of the season, they would not even get noticed. But since UQAOS owners are staring at that 184 BA, they are wringing their hands. Adam Dunn's 2011 disaster was an extreme outlier. It's fresh in our minds, so it's only natural to cast a cast to look around for this year's edition of Dunn. But there isn't a Dunn level collapse every year. Most 2 for 20 starts are forgotten by the end of April, when performance starts to normalize. In many leagues, there's little option to trade or replace high-value players who are underperforming, so you have little choice but to ride out their cool starts. And that's exactly the best course of action anyway. It would just be easier to follow that course of action if you didn't have to stare at your 11th place standing every morning. This is, after all, why we always encourage players to practice excruciating patience. It's not always easy to do the right thing.
0: Ray Murphy, pinch-hitting for BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler, who writes a weekly column every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 Eastern at USAToday.com, and he discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of April the 21st. It's show number 14 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to Baseball HQ Radio. Of course, as always, we invite you to tell your friends about the show. Please take a second to go to iTunes and give us those five stars that keep us going. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with John Norman of Fantasy Squared. An interesting concept. It'll be interesting to see how well they do with that. You can check out the website at fantasysquared.com. Also thanks to our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and the columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. And our Master Notes commentator this week, pinch hitting for BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler, was managing editor Ray Murphy. We have more really great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Robert Berger's research piece on the hot starts in previous seasons, Alex Becky's head-to-head article on better-than-average hitting, and Matt Cederholm's first Market Pulse column of 2012, fittingly titled, And So It Begins. Plus, we have our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. You can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is available as a free podcast through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com slash radio, where we have a complete archive of past editions as well. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.